Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and supplemented them with research into Greco-Roman history. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. A warning, this episode features sexual content and animal cruelty. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. The heavens are filled with our stories, timeless symbols painted in the stars. Each and every constellation introduces new generations to myths of every mood, heroic ones and heartbreaking ones, strange, mysterious ones, even light, twinkling, fun ones. According to Western astrology, these celestial myths are more than just colorful tales. They're ciphers for the powerful forces that compel the heavens and the earth. When we understand those ciphers, we supposedly move one step closer to understanding ourselves, even if sometimes we don't like what we see. Welcome to Mythology, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is the final installment of our summer solstice takeover. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at the myths behind the signs of the Western Zodiac with a special extra episode each Thursday. Check out tales, superstitions, and mythical monsters for more of the special. Today on Mythology, we're telling the myths behind Pisces, Aries, and Taurus, the twin fish, the ram, and the bull of the Zodiac. According to astrology, these stories tell us something about the people ruled by each sign, some good, some bad, and some in between. After all, no personality is perfect, and sometimes our failings lead us to certain doom. Coming up, the tale of a mother, a son, and a watery escape. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
there's a large constellation high above you, spanning across a broad swath of the northern celestial hemisphere. The ancient Greeks thought it looked like two fish, their tails tied together. But its stars are difficult to see with the naked eye, always twinkling enigmatically, just out of view. Which is fitting for the astrological sign it represents, Pisces, which rules those born between February 19th and March 20th the final dark, cold stretch of winter, a time of quiet, secrets, and lonely dreams. Or in Greco-Roman mythology, the tale of two large fish called the Ichthyus. Their stories are not an ancient blockbuster like the stories of Hercules or Theseus. These fish are fleeting characters in the long saga of the ancient gods. But like Pisces people, they have an artist's sense of timing. They take center stage at just the right moments to have an impact. First, they pull Venus, the goddess of love, out of the sea foam where she was born. Then they find her again in the most dire of circumstances. That fateful morning, Venus didn't have a care in the world. She basked by the river Euphrates, eyes closed, mind flowing with the current, almost dreaming, but not quite. She sighed with contentment. This was her favorite state. Sometimes it took her to strange places, the depths of the ocean, or the farthest reaches of the horizon. Sometimes it made her feel like a shadow playing on the surface of the waves, real yet unreal. But then a strange, very real sound interrupted her daydreams. Venus opened her eyes. She flipped over to face the river and peered across the water. Two small shapes appeared to be fighting the current, heading her way. Fish jumping in the middle of the furious stream. Venus gasped. She'd recognize those glinting scales anywhere. Even though she'd only seen them once before, it was the most important day of her life. My friends, my dear Ichthyus, it's been too long. In the very first moments of her life, they had dragged her out of the waves and guided her to Mount Olympus to live with the gods. But before Venus could ask them why they'd come, an even louder sound joined the growing chaos of the riverbank. The goddess turned away toward Mount Olympus, looming benevolently over the world. Only today, the mountain didn't look quite so imposing. There was a dark shape approaching Olympus, and the very sight of it filled her with unspeakable dread. Venus, arm yourself! He is coming! Venus's eyes alighted on two figures racing toward her from the mountain. One of these was her cherubic son, Cupid. His usually bright tunic was charred and torn, his arm a blistering red. Beside him was the imposing figure of Jupiter, king of the gods. His face was a mask of fury, but not at Venus, at whatever horror was behind them. <sighs> Venus! You must arm yourself. Have you a sword? A bow? Jupiter, you're talking nonsense. I am no warrior. 
Destruction has come to Olympus, Venus. We need everyone to do their part. Listen to yourself. What could I do in a fight? Make our enemy fall in love with you? I'm sure you don't want that either. Look behind me, Venus. Really, look! Reluctantly, Venus moved her gaze from Jupiter and looked toward the monstrosity surging its way across Olympus. It had a body teeming with writhing serpents. Fire and molten rock streamed from its mouth instead of saliva, and scattered around it were the bodies of fallen gods. Venus stared, appalled, reaching out her arms to pull the panting Cupid to her chest. This could only be one monster. It's Typhon. Now do you see? I need everyone to take up arms against this monster. It is our duty to ensure it does not crush our home. It is your duty, Jupiter. Cupid and I, our domains are love and passion. Can that same passion not be used for fighting? Absolutely not. Maybe violence and love are the same to you, but to those of us who understand the difference... Fine, fine. I don't have time for a lecture. Let us stop arguing about whether it is right and think instead about whether it is necessary. We are losing! Then surely it is wiser to flee and regroup instead of madly throwing your least violent gods at the beast? I'm no tactician either, but it seems to me that you're letting fear get the better of you. Now, Venus! There is nowhere for you, nowhere for any of us, to hide. Jupiter looked back over his shoulder, and the beast turned to look right back at him, as if it could feel the God King's gaze. Its eyes blazed like coals. It took a step forward and spread its wings. Their dark shapes surged outwards until darkness crashed over Olympus. Typhon was blocking out the sun. But still, Venus could hear his thunderous footsteps getting closer and closer. Jupiter, I'm sorry. I do want to help. But there is nothing I can do. She took a step away. Jupiter's eyes crackled with lightning, but he did not attempt to force her. The king of the gods thought that there was no choice but to fight. However, Venus knew there was always a choice. She just had to figure out what her alternative was. She stumbled backwards towards the river, pulling Cupid with her. Her toes hit the cold water, a welcome chill as the scorching breath of Typhon filled the air around her. Jupiter was yelling something, but she did not heed him. If only they could just swim away, but the current was too fierce, and in this darkness, they'd be dashed against the rocks and wind up in Typhon's jaws with Jupiter and the rest of them. Cupid whimpered in her arms. Venus clenched her teeth. That's when she heard them, under the drone of Typhon's footsteps, the Ichthyus splashing frantically in the water as if trying to get her attention. Of course, they'd saved her once, and now they were here to save her again. 
Without hesitation, Venus ran towards them, dragging trembling Cupid by the hand. The fierce current pulled violently at their clothes. Cupid's grip tightened on the goddess's hand. He was afraid, but he trusted her beyond words. Venus! Then the current seemed to change. The water began to swirl faster and faster, sucking them into the center of an enormous whirlpool. Finally, it spat them out. Venus felt herself arc through the sky, lighter than she'd ever been. She also felt slippery. At the peak of her flight, she saw Jupiter turning back to face the gaping volcanic monster. He didn't spare a second look at her, and neither did Typhon. Cupid and Venus would be safe from the chaotic battle because they no longer had the appearance of gods. Venus realized what had happened when she hit the water and vanished into the river Euphrates. The Ichthyus weren't just dragging them to safety, they'd lent her their image. They'd turned her and Cupid into fish. Eventually, Jupiter defeated Typhon by dropping Sicily's Mount Etna on the beast. Venus and Cupid were able to return to their godly forms, and Venus felt a faint twinge of guilt. Maybe she should have tried to help, but she still stood by everything she told him. Not every god could be a warrior. There should be a place in the pantheon for a god who was gentle and dreamy and thoughtful. The Ichthyus understood that. They understood her, even if Jupiter couldn't. So she did what any wise goddess would do. She repaid them. Ichthyus, my friends, my water spirits, I would like to speak with you, if you'll let me. The two fish emerged from the water, twisting and shimmering in the afternoon light, listening. I'll never be able to repay you fully for what you have done, but you're creatures of the deep. I know you understand the pull of dreams as I do. I want to offer you a place in the sky where you can guide the dreams and fantasies of men and gods forever. For a moment, the fish disappeared under the surface, consulting. Then they emerged, flipped their tails, and leapt up towards the sky. They'd made their choice. And they kept traveling up and up until the twin creatures reached the heavens to become the constellation Pisces. It's a fitting origin story for Pisces, a water sign that rules the 12th house. This house guards all that is unseen and secret. It is the realm of the subconscious, dreams, and catharsis. For people born during Pisces season, February 19th to March 20th, this energy is particularly powerful. But astrology also tells us that the 12th affects us all at different times of the year as the planets move across the heavens. 
The ichthyas, glimmering in the far reaches of the sky, slip into all our lives, even if they do so in their quiet, indirect way. The next constellation has an utterly different tone. It is known as Ares, not to be confused with the Greek god of war, also called Ares. Nestled just to the east of Pisces, the ancients thought it was shaped like a ram. It rules those born between March 21st and April 19th. It's the first zodiac sign of spring, of rebirth, and the passionate, joyful will to grow again. Of course, it's a fire sign. In Greco-Roman mythology, Ares is best known as the Golden Fleece, a prize to be won by enterprising heroes. But before he was a fleece, he was a living creature, a ram to be precise. And unlike Pisces, Ares is often looking for a fight, especially when there's a righteous reason. Like, for instance, two innocent children waiting to be executed, thanks to their stepmother's jealousy. Coming up, a humble ram tries to become a hero. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. Must be a way out of here. Come on, Frixus, think! Prince Frixus paced furiously about the chamber. There was a huge meal laid out in spite of the famine racking the kingdom. But neither Frixus nor his sister Heli partook in the towers of fruit, bread, and meats. Their father had laid out this feast not out of love, but out of guilt. In only a matter of hours, they were to be sacrificed. King Atamas didn't want to kill his own children, but an oracle had told him it was the only way to appease the gods and save his kingdom from starvation. Heli sobbed quietly into a divan. Phrixus felt his heart break every time he looked at her. She was just a child, even younger than him. Maybe he should die to save the kingdom from starvation, if that was what the gods wanted, but not her. He went from the window to the door and listened for soldiers in the hall. I do not hear anyone outside. Good. Gives us time to plan our escape. We have a few hours yet. That's more than enough time. But Heli didn't even look up. 
Her sobs continued unabated. Phrixus knelt beside her. Do not despair, sister, please. I'm going to find our way out of this. And if I do not, I'm going to throw myself at the guards. Maybe I'll be able to buy enough time for you to run past. Can you do that for me, Helly? Helly looked up from the divan, tear-stained eyes wide, with fear, but with hope and faith in her big brother, too. Maybe there's some way we can climb out this window. For the hundredth time that day, he walked over to the casement, opened it, and peered out down the side of the tower, scanning for footholds or loose stones, anything. Usually this was a fruitless gesture, except this time he did see something, not on the wall, in the distance, a figure flying towards him, awkwardly and ungainly, as if it wasn't used to flying, and it was heading straight towards him. Is that a ram? His confusion was increased tenfold when the creature came within earshot. Clear the way! I'm still getting used to this! Let me through! Those soldiers are bound to look up eventually! Phrixus stood aside in shock, and the ram careened through the tower window, very nearly smashing into the pile of food. Hooves firmly on the floor, he shook himself off. I know, I know, a flying talking ram is something you do not see every day. I've come to rescue you, on the orders of Jupiter himself, king of the gods. Jupiter? So he doesn't want us to be sacrificed? No, Jupiter doesn't want you. Why would he? You're just children. Grow up first, then maybe you'll make worthwhile sacrifices. But why did the Oracle tell our father we had to die? The Oracle spoke falsely. She was manipulated by your stepmother. She's the one who wants you dead. I knew it. No real god would want a little girl like Heli dead. I knew it was wrong. Yes, quite right. But let's not make our triumphant speeches just yet. They're coming for you. Come, hop on my back. We'll fly to safety. Phrixus was shaken back into reality. The ram was right. The soldiers were coming for them. They needed to get out. Now. He turned to his sister. She was no longer crying, but her eyes were filled with uncertainty. He gently held out his hand and nodded. It's going to be okay. Heli took his hand, and the two of them hopped on the ram's back. Heli held onto her brother's waist as tightly as she could. Then the ram leapt towards the window. The guards burst in, just in time to watch all three of them, the princess, the prince, and the ram, vanish out into the sky. Ares laughed as he heard the guards roar in frustration behind them. Meanwhile, Phrixus and Heli spent their first few moments in the sky, clutching desperately at Ares' fur. But it didn't take them long to start laughing, too. After all, they had survived certain death. There was much to be thankful for. They were free, and there's no feeling more freeing than flight. 
Ares, meanwhile, felt his heart swell with joy and pride. He'd done it. He'd saved these two innocents. Not only that, he had successfully accomplished Jupiter's mission. Almost anyway, the hard part was over. I'm taking you to Colchis. It's a kingdom far from here, where you could decide what you'd like to do next. Make your own fate. But the high reaches of the sky are not a place for mortal children. As the day wore into evening, the air thinned and they started to tire. By the time the sky was black and the stars were bright above, Phrixus and Helle were clutching onto Ares' curls with stiff hands. Are we almost there, Rem? Ares! My name is Ares! Sorry, are we almost there, Ares? Yes, just across the strait here. In the meantime, look around you. Follow the tips of my horns. That's the constellation Gemini over there. And there's Cancer. Beautiful. I've never been so close to the stars. But as the ram flew over the strait, a wild gust of wind hit, the fiercest yet. And while Phrixus was distracted by the stars, Helly's hands had gone numb. Her little fingers slipped. Phrixus whipped around just in time to see Helly disappear off the ram's back. No! Hearing the prince's scream, Ares spun around and dove toward the earth. He couldn't let this happen. But then they saw it. Helly, she'd landed on an outcropping of rocks. Her little form was a wreck of blood and gore. Phrixus and Ares, each in their own silent stupor of pain, collected Helly's remains and made the final journey to Colchis. Slowly, carefully, and not so high in the sky this time. When they arrived, the king of Colchis welcomed them solemnly. He proclaimed the strait they'd crossed would be called Hellespont forevermore. It was the least he could do for the fallen princess. He took Helly's body to his priest to prepare for burial and left the survivors to mourn in his gardens. I'm so sorry, Prince. She was just a little girl. I should have died in her place. No one should have died. This was my fault. I failed my mission. I was supposed to save you both. Maybe I should go home. Die too, at the hand of my stepmother. Don't speak such nonsense, Phrixus. You're just a youth yourself. I was old enough to take care of her. The gods will get their sacrifice, one way or another. I must go home. At that, Phrixus stood up and started marching back towards the palace. Ares started after him in a panic, but he wasn't one to brood. His resolve hardened. He trotted after Phrixus, then stopped in front of the prince, blocking his path. You're right. Helly's death deserves another death in penance, but not yours. It was I whom the gods sent to save you. It was I who flew too fast and too high. 
sacrifice me, and the gods will be satisfied. For a moment, Phrixus was silent, confusion painted across his face, but slowly he began to nod. You were sent by the gods to save us, and if you choose to die, that's a much more meaningful offering than my stepmother's false schemes. Phrixus reached out a hand and placed it on the ram. He did not need to say any more. His gratitude to this noble beast was clear. That night, under the starry sky, Ares was slain beside a roaring fire. It was painful, yes. A knife ran across his throat, letting blood pool around him like a lake. Before long, his chest fell still. Tears streamed down Phrixus's face as he stroked the ram. He had seen so much death for someone so young. That's when he noticed that the fleece in his hands was no longer the wiry coat of a ram, but the cool texture of gold, a golden fleece, a sign from the gods. This was the right choice. One day, heroes would pursue this treasure, something precious, born of bravery and death. Perhaps now, Phrixus could go on living, never forgetting the tragedy of Heli's death, but remembering the nobility of the creature who sought to make amends. Meanwhile, Ares felt his spirit rising through the smoke of the fire, a more weightless kind of flying than he'd ever done as a living ram. He rose and rose until he found himself at the very height of the heavens, amongst the stars. A voice boomed in the twinkling darkness, one Ares would recognize anywhere, even beyond death. Jupiter! I've come back! Sorry it took so long. You have indeed, little ram. You came back to me as a sacrifice. A wise way to return, considering you didn't accomplish your mission. Yet, despite your failure, you've managed to tilt the scales back in your favor. So, I'll leave you here. Let you keep your flight. Forever. You've earned an illustrious place, little ram. One amongst the stars. Ares' story is one of bold action and passionate emotion. It's a tale about death, but one in which death serves to emphasize the value of life. It's a fitting story for those born between March 21st and April 19th. They're enthusiastic, optimistic people who prefer to look for solutions rather than ruminate and overplan. They're also the first sign in the astrological calendar, which makes them the so-called infant of the zodiac. They bring strong, raw emotion, where Pisces brought mystery and indecision. After all, what's more clear and emotive than the rebirth of nature in the first muddy month of spring? But as spring reaches her apotheosis in Taurus season from April 20th through May 20th, she takes on a different quality, one of billowing, mature pleasure. 
That's fitting for a season ruled by one of the most noticeable constellations in the sky. Located just to the west of Aries, it glitters like a strand of diamonds. Ancient astronomers thought it was shaped like a beautiful bull. This bull started out as a princess named Io, a woman so beautiful that Jupiter, the king of the gods, was desperate to have her for himself. Coming up, Eo's trials begin. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity, with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now back to the story. Eo's limbs were splayed out across the tangled sheets, gleaming white in the soft morning light. Her wide eyes were closed, and a little smile played across her lips. She felt content. As it turned out, Jupiter made a good lover. She didn't even mind that after their passionate night together, he had returned to his wife, Juno. After all, gods had their own rules about marriage and lovers, and she liked to have the bed to herself, more space to stretch. Except, was he back at her window? Io dragged herself up, trailing a sheet, and pulled open the casement. In blue Jupiter. Eo! Oh, thank goodness you're all right. Throw on a robe. Juno found out about us, and I'm afraid she's not pleased. I need to hide you. She's your wife. Shouldn't you two figure this out on your own? I have things to do today. First of all, I need a good breakfast after last night, and then I'm going to go swim in the sea. Io, don't be a child. This is no time for fun. She'll be here any minute. Will you hide with me? There are some old chambers around the palace where no one would ever find us. It would not be enough to hide from Juno. Unfortunately, we'll need to do something more drastic. A transformation. If she recognizes you, Juno's wrath will be unspeakable. Come with me, out to the gardens. We'll do it there. A transformation? I'm not interested, Jupiter. This is your problem. Deal with it yourself. I'm staying here. It's not up for debate. With that, he grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her out of the room, still wrapped in nothing more than her sheet. It was a beautiful day. Not a bad one to wander around in the sun as an animal, Eo thought, as the breeze caressed her shoulders. Maybe it would be an adventure, but she had to set her boundaries. I'm warming up to the idea. 
I think I'd like to be a cow. A beautiful one, pure white. But make sure it doesn't last too long. I do actually have things to do besides making guest appearances in your marriage, Jupiter. A cow! Wonderful idea! With perfect wide eyes, like yours. Not for long, though. No, no, of course not. Don't worry. I'll... I'll deal with all this as quickly as I can. I'm sure once she arrives down here and finds a cow instead of a princess, she'll give up on punishing you. Well, change me then. Let's get this over with. Jupiter didn't ask twice. He stroked Io's long, golden hair, and she felt her body start to ache, like every muscle was straining, lifting the heaviest boulder she'd ever touched. The pain mounted. She felt like her limbs were being ripped from her. And then it was over. She blinked. Her eyes felt as round and long-lashed as ever, but the world looked different. She was watching it from a different angle, and she couldn't see red tones, just blues and greens and violets. She tossed her head around in curious wonder. She was a cow. Io did not have long to take in her new state, because just as she started to move her legs and rub her hooves against the soft grass, a strange wind began to blow around the little garden. She looked at Jupiter nervously. He glanced back and held his finger to his lips. The wind coalesced in a tall, wild column, mere feet away from Io. Through it, she could begin to make out a beautiful, statuesque figure. But her striking face was contorted with anger, and beneath that anger, pain. Io felt something pulling at her legs. She looked down and saw tendrils of wind whipping at her, drawing her towards Juno. She sunk her hooves into the grass, but she did not slow. Her hooves merely tore ruts in the soft soil. Juno, stop. It's just a cow. Surely you don't think a cow has wronged you? Oh, no. Of course it's just a cow. But such a pretty one. As pretty as a princess. Which is why she'll make such a perfect pet. I'm taking her to my gardens. Of course, if she reveals herself to be something more than a cow, well, you all just have to wait and see what will happen. With that, Juno grinned, and Io felt a final, violent tug against her legs. Then she was in the whirlwind, watching Jupiter's panicked face disappear on the other side of the cyclone. Io was filled with rage. Jupiter was the king of the gods. How dare he let this happen? Underneath all his bravado and charm, he was a coward, not the lover for her at all. She wished she could scream at him, but voicing her anger would give her away to Juno. She'd have to bide her time. And bide her time she did. 
the whirlwind deposited her in Juno's gardens, an astonishingly beautiful place for any cow to live, but Io couldn't appreciate it. She wandered listlessly from pasture to pasture, longing for her human life, the life she'd loved. One of lounging in gardens, yes, but also of good company and good food and good sex. More than anything else, she missed her body. She would have walked a thousand miles to get it back, but she couldn't flee. She was on Olympus, and Juno's gardens were guarded by ever-watchful monsters. Her hide shivered with fear whenever she caught sight of them. She just had to wait until Jupiter returned to make this right. So she waited and waited. Io had started to give up hope when under the cover of a dark night, her former lover finally arrived. There you are, Jupiter. How dare you make me wait so long? You left me here, helpless, a cow. Well, you do make the most beautiful cow, Io, as perfect and unmarred as the day I met you. Your eyes, they're the same eyes that whisper of all nature's beauty. Jupiter, I am not interested anymore. Just get me out of here, now, before one of the monsters makes me into a snack for your siblings or your wife. Well, funny you should bring them up. I got in without attracting their attention, but my powers won't let me hide you from them. I'm afraid I can't exactly smuggle you home. What exactly do you expect me to do then? Stay here? No, no. Don't worry, I have a plan to get you out, not home, but up. I can make you a constellation. A constellation? Jupiter, I am human. I want to be human. Jupiter looked at her helplessly. Rage filled Io's chest like venom. He was serious. He wasn't going to turn her back. But... Then she looked up at the sky. It was beautiful up there, and to be a constellation, that was to be eternal, glittering, the best of nature, perhaps better than her human form. Perhaps, perhaps she could cut a deal. I don't want to give up the passions of human life. I'm still young. How will I participate if I'm up there? Ah, yes. Oh, I'm sure you can participate. Uh, yes, uh, why don't you watch over the humans? Help rule their passions. You had such excellent qualities as a woman. You were so sensible, and you appreciated pleasure like no one I've ever known. Show that to other humans, from the heavens. I'm listening. Io paused then, watching Jupiter squirm under her gaze. She liked the feeling of power, especially over the man who'd gotten her stuck here in the first place. But she wasn't done yet. Very well. But I have a few other requirements. I want horns. I don't want to look so innocent anymore. And I want my stars to shine bright. I can arrange that. Well, then get it done. I'm ready. Jupiter, nodding eagerly, began to spin his magic. This time, the transformation wasn't painful. 
Io felt her heavy, ponderous bovine body lighten, gently as if air were filling her bones, caressing her from the inside out. She felt good. She closed her eyes. But then, abruptly, the pleasure stopped. In fact, all the feelings of a body, human or cow, were gone, as was Juno's garden. Io was surrounded by endless velvet black, and she was glowing. She had become a collection of stars spanning across the heavens. As she looked down on humanity, she forgot the Olympian schemes that led her here and felt peace. Io, whether princess or cow, was a beauty, one who enjoyed life's sensual pleasures and all its best comforts. But she was also level-headed, strong-willed, and brave. These are all characteristics we see in the Taurus people she rules. Born between April 20th and May 20th, Taurians enjoy having a good time, eating well, drinking well, good sex, physical comfort of all kinds. But they're also deeply loyal, sometimes to the point of stubbornness, and they're unafraid of hard work. In fact, Taurians can be very ambitious. After all, what could be a greater ambition than standing up to the king of the gods himself and rising from the role of the mortal mistress to a permanent fixture of the heavens? We hope that over the course of our summer solstice special, sharing the myths behind the stars has helped illustrate why we find their guidance so appealing. If you haven't yet, remember to check out the rest of the episodes in the special here on mythology, as well as on mythical monsters, tales, and superstitions. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology and our Summer Solstice Special. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. We're turning from Greek and Roman mythology back to Norse mythology, and we're following one of the most famous gods of all, Thor, the god of thunder. As always, you can find more episodes of Mythology and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. If you're curious about the astrological ideas we touched on in this episode and across our summer solstice special, check out Horoscope Today, another Spotify original from Parcast. Horoscope Today gives a quick daily update on how the stars are affecting each sign of the zodiac. We'll be back Tuesday with another epic story. Mythology is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Mythology was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Kim Lynn Tran, Joe Hernandez, and Tom Bauer. 
I'm Vanessa Richardson. 